today on Let's Talk Limbic Sparks. I'm with Liz Engelson, Chief Marketing and Engagement Officer of Zavfit, a health tech startup and the first company to identify and address money stress as a health issue. I'm Kevin Perlmutter, Chief Strategist and Founder of Limbic Brand Evolution, a brand strategy and neuromarketing consultancy that taps into emotional insight to strengthen connections between brands and people. The limbic system part of our brain supports emotion, motivation, behavior, and memory. And I'm curious how my guests are creating what I call limbic sparks, which happen when emotional motivation meets brand desire. I love talking with brand leaders who are turning emotional insight into a competitive advantage to drive business growth for the brands that they serve. Liz, thank you so much for joining me today. And let's talk limbic sparks. Thanks, Kevin. I am really excited to be here and talk to you today. And yeah, let's get started. Outstanding. I am so psyched that we're doing this as well. And how are things for you today? Yeah, they're going really well. It's August in Edinburgh and uh, the Edinburgh Fringe is on. If you don't know about it, it's a month long festival all with comedians and actors and dancers and cabaret and music, everything you can imagine. So the city is jam-packed. Wow. That is right up your alley. And I wish I could be there with you. (laughs) I always enjoy when we talk, you bring such a specific energy into any conversation. And I believe, you know, and I've, I've seen you in action. I believe you inspire people to be at their best at all times. I'm curious, what motivates you in your approach to life and career? Oh, that's such a great question. I like how you jump right in with a big question. I try. I don't I don't waste any time. <laughs> no, not at all. And it, it's quite funny because when we met, um, my life was very different. I was living in New York City. Um, I was single. I was, you know, extremely focused on my career. And now I'm over on the other side of the pond. I'm in Scotland. Um, and I've got a family. So I'd say um, the things that motivate me, probably like most people have changed quite dramatically. Mm-hmm. And perhaps even more so during the pandemic, when we were, you know, all locked in at home, it gave a lot of us an opportunity to hit reset on our priorities and the things that motivate us. So I'd say probably an answer that you might get is my family is a big motivator for me. Mm -hmm. Um, Not so much providing for my family, but it's more about the time that we have together. And that's a big motivator for me is being present during those moments. Um, You know, whether it's cooking a meal together, whether it's sitting down and reading a book with my son, you know, walking my son to school, having those moments that we share together is really motivating and really kind of important to me. And one thing that hasn't changed since New York is, yeah, I'm still very curious. I love being exposed to new things and going to talks and exhibitions, hearing different perspectives on the world and seeing different views. And um, that's why things like the Fringe Festival is, yeah, something that's yeah really fabulous about being in Edinburgh, because it gives me access to all of those things that, um, that you would typically find in a larger, bigger city like London, New York, Tokyo, stuff like that. Yeah, it's such it's such a beautiful place. And as you know, my family and I had a chance to visit 
uh, several, I don't know, five, six, I don't remember how many years ago, uh, we had a great meal together. That was wonderful. It's such a beautiful city. And I love watching how uh, you are enjoying it um, over the last several years. I'm curious, another thing that I, I see in you that I, I've experienced is um, the teams that you build and the people that you surround yourself with. What do you value in the relationships that you have with those people who you keep close? Yeah, that's, I, I think teams is a big part of of who I am and what I'm about and the people that I bring together. And I think one of the things that I've noticed that um, I'm attracted to in people or that I'm drawn to is people's outlook. So I'm a glass full type of person. So, and I really appreciate that in other people who, when they see a barrier or they see a road back, block or they see a problem, they don't stop and say like, oh, we can't do this because of, you know, X, Y, and Z. Um, I like people that say, okay, great. This gives us a chance to come up with something new. Let's, you know, let's think about how we could do something differently. Let's think about how we could approach this um, through an alternative uh, path, potentially. So, that kind of can do attitude and approach to life um, is something that I really value in other people and something that is like hugely helpful to me being at a startup because um, you're in a small team, you just have to muck in and sometimes you're not an expert at something, but you've got to use the skills that you have to think about how to break down the problem and how to move forward. Um, so yeah, being inclusive, bringing people together, stuff like that, I really value. The other thing that I really value is humor. And I don't necessarily mean someone who's going to crack jokes or be a stand-up comedian, but someone who really appreciates life and can make people smile. And my sister is absolutely brilliant at this and i'm constantly like trying to figure out like crack her code how does she how does she do this and it's it's always those tense awkward difficult situations that she makes everybody feel at ease she makes everyone feel comfortable and kind of gets everyone to smile and laugh and kind of breaks up that tension i want to ask you a question about brands. And, you know, as we both know, brands have a way of conjuring up an image or creating meaning. Um, what three to five brands would you say uh, paint a picture of what you're all about? Interesting. Um, I love brands and I have a really strong connection with a number of different brands. But I think right now I am struggling a little bit because I've been in the UK for 11 years now and I'm at that awkward stage where I'm starting to use British words <laughs> when I'm in America. And so all the strong connections that I had with American brands, I'm losing. And now I'm starting to form those bonds with British brands. Okay. Um, but it's taking me a little bit longer to do that because I don't have all those, I guess, 
memories and experiences of growing up in this country. So I don't necessarily relate to some of the things that they talk about or that they stand for. So, yeah, so it's quite, yeah, it's quite interesting. So one brand I think that probably describes me is an online retailer. Um, it's a British one. It's called Not on the High Street. So it's has a long name, um, which I would say is probably not good for a brand, but the ethos that they have is all about shopping local. And it's all about individualism and really supporting the independent maker. So high street here in the UK is the equivalent of the main street. So instead of going to a big box shopping center, um, like a Kohl's or a Macy's, it's shopping at your little local store who will provide something that's perhaps more interesting, more unusual from an independent maker or designer. And so that I feel describes me because I'm all about supporting the local, the local guy. Um, other brands, oh, feels a little cliche to say this, but maybe Apple, like it's a brand I absolutely adore because they make something that's complex, quite simple, and they make it, they appreciate using creativity to solve um, different issues. Hmm. And I kind of find myself bridging that as well. Like I love data, I love facts, but I love using creativity to solve problems as well. So I'm going to stop there. You're going to stop there. I think that those two combined, I, they, I think they do a great job of describing what I know about you. And I think it helps others get to know what you're all about as well. When it comes to brands that actually spark your desire that, that you frequent, that you, mm -hmm. are, are, they're your go-to can't live without brands in your life. Is there uh, something about those experiences that is most important that keeps you coming back for more? Yeah, definitely. Um, and it's it's such a great question. Like, why do we keep coming back to certain brands and what value do they add to our lives and why are they our go-tos? And I'll give you an example of something that has added tremendous value to my life. And it is an app called Noom. So it is a weight loss app and, or maybe a healthy living app is maybe a better way to describe it. And I had perhaps like many people came out of lockdown and had realized all of a sudden I was much heavier than I had ever been in my entire life. And I had no idea how to lose weight because I had never had to lose weight before. Um, and so what I liked is I had seen a couple ads for this company called Noom and I thought, oh, this is pretty interesting. They're talking about the psychology of eating and different behaviors that we have around eating. And instead of telling you to avoid certain things, they're helping you understand why you have certain behaviors, what triggers those behaviors and how to change those behaviors because that's how you will be able to maintain a healthy lifestyle over the long term. 
And so for that, they have a really clear role and purpose in my life. They're helping me achieve this healthy lifestyle. It's adding knowledge and insight to my life. So giving me the skills and the knowledge that I need. Um, and they really get me. So I feel like every time I open that app, they almost know me better than I know myself. So at times that can be a little creepy, um, but it's, it's fascinating. And I, it's just been, yeah, tremendous. So the experience that they provide is really, yeah, creating that connection with me because they understand not just my needs and my wants, but they understand my behaviors and are helping me to live a better life. One expression that I often use to describe what you just described is that they have enough insight to design the brand experience as if you were in mind when they did it. Yeah, and, exactly. And those kinds of brand experiences are really cool. Um, given that you talked about Noom, I have to do a shameless plug for episode 14 of Let's Talk Limbic Sparks, where I interviewed um, someone who is a neuroscientist at Noom, uh, Siobhan Mitchell. And uh, that's a great episode as well, where we go into all the details of how they do that for people like yeah. you. So that's a really... Oh, it is amazing. I'm constantly... Anybody who will listen to me, I'm talking about Noom. Yeah. It's like, I feel like I should get a referral fee or something because I'm constantly plugging them. It's It literally is the most clever app that I have ever used. It's yeah. just brilliant. That's fantastic. Well done, yeah. neuroscientists. <laughs> That's fantastic <laughs> to hear about. Uh, your LinkedIn bio describes you as a strategist by trade and a creative at heart. Can you talk about that intersection a bit? Yeah, I can. And oh gosh, I feel a little cheesy having written that on my LinkedIn <laughs> bio, but um, but it is the truth. Um, because all of my professional experience has really been strategy focused, like analyzing data, gathering facts, being able to synthesize all that information for different brands. So basically looking at the consumer lens and really trying to understand what are their needs, both rationally and emotionally, looking at category trends and what are the dynamics of a category. So looking at competitors and landscapes and who's doing what. So all these types of things I've always done professionally. Um, and so that comes very natural to me. The creative at heart is probably my upbringing because I come from a very creative family and not everyone knows this, but my mother is an artist. My sister's an artist. Uh, my grandfather was also an artist. And I also have photographers and jewelers and architects and makers and designers in my family. So I have a natural affinity to all things creative and understanding the value that a creative mind can bring to a problem. And they just think about things differently. They just do. It's not a linear one plus one is two. It's like one plus 31 plus a and Z and Q, and this will lead us to a diff different direction. So 
I think that having that type of upbringing alongside my strategic professional career, um, yeah, provides a really interesting intersection to the way I, I look at problems and an openness or inclusiveness to it that I have to um, doing things a little differently, yeah. I would say. Recently, you launched an award-winning interior design blog that I've got to ask you about. It has over 10,000 Instagram followers and over 100,000 monthly Pinterest views. What is this about? Tell us, what is it and what is your inspiration behind it? I know. It's crazy, isn't it? Um, interior design, and this is probably the creative side of me. It's interior design has always been a passion um, of mine. And many times in my professional career, I have thought about doing a major pivot and um, following that passion and going into uh, residential interior design. And um, I've always renovated the homes that I've lived in. I've always had friends and family ask me for advice about their homes, not just about what pink color looks nice, but more around the flow of their home and the use of different rooms and things along those lines. So um, when my son was young and I was deciding what was I going to do, I had stepped down from my um, career as head of strategy at Interbrand and I was contemplating what, what was next for me. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to go for this. I'm going to do it. So I actually went back to school and I studied interior design. And during that, I decided to launch this blog that was all about providing inspiration to other people who might also be contemplating a big change um, in their life and basically giving everyone a little bit of an insight what it was like to go back to school as a um, adult student and in something that was completely different than my professional career. And I thought it would be very inspiring pe to people to hear from um, up and coming artists, up and coming designers, up and coming architects and what their journey was and what inspired them and what their kind of path was. So yeah, so my blog, I'll do a shameless plug, Niz Please. Liz Nylon Designs. Um, is all about that journey and also um, talking about design trends and, of course, some renovation tips as well. It's a fantastic blog. It is so cool that you did that and keep yeah. it going. Earlier in your career, you held a variety of different roles, leading research, leading innovation, leading strategy. So are there any unique or do you, do you see yourself as having brought unique perspectives or approaches to those roles, building on, on this creative at heart piece of you? Yeah, no, definitely. I think I was yeah, really blessed to have a varied career and be able to do a lot of different things and work for a lot of big global brands. I've always been on the consulting side and I think probably that's, where part of my creative side has come from as well. And the idea of liking um, liking a mix of different things. So 
being one day able to work with um, Absolute Vodka and then the next day be working with MasterCard. And then the third day, maybe I'd be working with British Airways. And so that mixture of different things and different problems, um, I think, suited my my um, upbringing very well because um, I really just sparked to those challenges. And of course, being curious and, and naturally very inquisitive about people and consumers, that um, lended myself to a mixture of these, these different types of roles and positions. But I would say that the things that I brought to each role was probably first and foremost is always having the consumer at the, at the heart of everything mm -hmm. that I did. Yeah. So my research um, background probably set me up for that and having a very strong understanding of consumers wondering why they act in a certain way, why they use one product over another, the experiences that they value in their lives and understanding those behaviors and motivators and decision processes really lended itself really well to then later careers that I had in innovation or in strategy, which my strategy roles were more, not product, but corporate. Yeah. And so then looking at big corporate problems and saying, okay, well, how do we bring employees along on this journey? How do we help them acquire the skills and the knowledge that they need to be able to deliver on these business goals? And what about our product portfolios? What do they need to look like if we're going to be standing for um, health? You know, what does that need to look like? Three years ago, you joined startup ZabFit, a wellness company at the intersection of money and well-being. What drew you to that role and what's been most inspiring uh, in that work so far? Yeah, I actually get asked this question all the time. Um, especially by people who, you know, might be following me on, you know, Instagram or um, Pinterest and know that I was going down this design path. They say, wait, what happened? What What are you doing at Zephit? And so I really, truly believe that people come into our lives for a reason. And um, I met Anna Freeman, who's the founder and CEO of Zephit. She is hugely inspiring and her vision was something that really intrigued me. I hadn't really heard of a health company that was focusing on money stress. And I thought this, this is a really original idea. And when I started, you know, digging around, uh, seeing what the financial well-being landscape looked like, I very quickly learned it was a very crowded space, but everyone was focused on finances. It was all about the money. No one was really looking at the stress that people were feeling. And with my background in innovation, I knew that this was a really radical idea. And I thought, you know what, I have to be part of this. And the founder, she's hugely passionate about making a difference in people's lives and really helping people with their well-being and that sense of purpose. Um, yeah, it was really compelling to me. So 
I started out just consulting, giving her advice. And, you know, one day turned into two days, turned into three days. And um, yeah, now I'm, I'm full time. So that's, that's what inspired me. And as you started looking into the, uh, the health and well-being side of money, what did you learn about uh, the stress that it causes? And, and why is this such a health concern? Yeah, it's, um, it's really quite frightening, actually, as I started to unpick what money stress was. And um, one of the things that I've learned um, from doing research and talking with our science team and other psychologists and CBT experts is that money is one of those taboo topics. It's something that is sort of off limits. It's not something we openly talk about with our family and our, and our friends. And as a result of that, a lot of people, like including myself when it comes to money, you know, I felt alone, I felt isolated, and that I didn't really have anywhere to turn. And um, I don't know if it was around embarrassment or being worried about being judged for not knowing something that I feel like I should know. Um, or if it was, you know, embarrassment about, you know, maybe I haven't saved enough, or maybe my credit cards are a little bit too high. And maybe I don't have enough in my bank account to eat out at that really nice restaurant. And so what we found is that it doesn't matter how much money people have or how much money they don't have, um, people are still worried and anxious and it just manifests itself in different ways. So some people might just be feeling guilty for spending impulsively. So maybe, um, and this is something like in my New York City days, you know, you don't bring your lunch to work. So you run out to grab lunch and, you know, right next to the Pret is a Zara. So you say, oh, let me just pop into Zara and pop into Zara. And all of a sudden, you know, you're just looking, but next thing you know, you've got a blazer, you've got a, you know, a top and you're at the, at the, and this is where I'm starting to use British words. You're at the till, the register, paying for those things. And then you get home and you're like, what did I just do? Like, I don't need this blazer. I don't need this extra top. And so it, part of it is around those feelings of guilt and those feelings of regret. And then now you just add on top the economic climate that we're currently in with inflation rates going up and interest rates going up and everybody's day-to-day -day costs, whether it's food or fuel or energy costs are going up. Um, people have less and less. And so naturally, um, yeah, people are starting to really get worried and anxious. Yeah, you see it on that. the news, you're hearing it in conversations. And exactly. you know, people and are so, actually starting to talk about money because it's a concern. Yes. yes. So that's a really good thing. And so what we found is that people need help. And a budgeting tool and a savings app or telling you to save money for the future isn't going to help alleviate that stress what you need is you need to focus on your day-to-day -day spending behaviors and really understand the motivators 
mm-hmm. behind those um, and that can help with some of the stress. So that's a really interesting point that you just brought up is it's not just about giving people tools to fix it. You have to address the underlying conditions that are causing the behavior. So what are the ways that ZabFit helps people identify those causes and overcome stresses? Yeah, it's um, it's been something our science team has really been working quite hard on. And it's an area that hasn't really been explored when you look out for scientific when you when you do a search of scientific papers on money and well-being there aren't a lot of them there's a few that pop up this is one of the reasons why our founder was so insistent that we become a health app and not a finance app and why she made it a priority to hire health team. So we've got a neuroscientist on our team. We've got a behavioral scientist on our team. We've got a CBT expert on our team. And our tech team actually come from a biohealth background as well. So it's very, very health focused. Um, And so how is Avfit helping people is that we didn't want to do, we didn't want to go down the route of finance. We wanted to go down the route of health. And so in order to do that, in order to help people improve their health and well-being by reducing the stress and guilt that they feel around money, we knew that there were certain steps that they needed to go through. So the first step is people need to see the connection between how they use their money and how they feel. So when they buy something, does that have a positive or negative impact on their mental or emotional health? So what we're trying to do with that is help people understand that connection and also be a little more informed and in tuned in the emotional impact of their spending, if that makes sense. Then by understanding that connection, we can then start, we can help them start to change the behaviors that cause stress and guilt. So it doesn't happen overnight. It's a it's a shift in people's mindset and a shift in the way that they think. And that's why the psychology behind what we're doing has taken quite a while for us to to build up and to test. So um so let me just spend a moment. Can I take one second just to explain yeah, of course, please. Yeah. And and I, I assume this is how the the people you work with, the neuroscience specialists and the health team, how they're actually informing the product service offering and the messaging. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, yeah I'd love to hear exactly. more about that. Exactly. So at the heart of our app is something that we call the psychology engine. And the psychology engine, what that does is it brings together people's well-being data and their spending data. And so we have people go through and do a little well-being assessment. They connect the app to their bank account. And we're, you know, we're regulated by the same regulators as the banks are. And what we do is we overlap those two data sets to start to look for patterns. And what we do is we get people to go through that first step. So when they make a purchase, we ask them to reflect on that purchase. 
It's like a mood rating that you find in other well-being apps, but it's a mood rating specific to a purchase. And so what we can start to see is patterns in people's moods. And then what we start to do is we then link those three things together. So we link how they feel about their well-being, what they spend their money on, and their mood. And then with those three things, we can start to make suggestions to them that will help to change the behaviors that cause them stress. So I'll give you an example, because this sometimes helps. We just completed um, our beta. We ran a, our initial beta with a very early stage version of our app. And one of the users who participated in that beta shared a story with us. So during their well-being assessment, one of the things that they rated as poor was their physical well-being. And when the psychology engine was doing its analysis, it flagged that this user was spending not only a lot of money on takeaways. So in the U.S., you call that takeout, right? Takeout. Um, but also making a lot of frequent spends on takeaways. So not only were they spending a lot, but there was a lot of occurrences of it as well. And every time they were asked to mood rate one of those takeaways or takeouts, it they registered it as an unhappy spend. So here we've got someone who said that they're not happy about their physical health. They're spending a lot and making a lot of purchases on takeaways, and they're not happy about it. So very simple. The psychology engine fed through to them what we call an avoid. So we had suggested that they avoid a spend on a takeaway. And they rejected that. They ignored it. They say, no, I don't want to do that. And then later in the week, it suggested it to it, them again because they had repeated the behavior and said they were unhappy about it. So we had suggested it. The app suggested it again. They rejected it. And this happened a number of times until we fed up a target that was phrased, enjoy cooking at home. And this is the power of language here. And this target really resonated with the user because they had a family and they enjoyed spending time with their family. So they decided not to order the takeaway, but they actually cooked a healthy meal at home with their kids. And then they mood rated that positive that experience is positive. And so one of the things that the neuroscientists and the CBT experts are constantly telling me is that behavior change takes time. And that it wasn't until this user had negatively mood rated the takeaway multiple, multiple times. It might've been over the course of weeks because we allowed them to use the app for four weeks. Um, it wasn't in until they had done that multiple times and rejected our suggestions that the light bulb went off and they then tried this new behavior. It's incredible how your approach is not to tell people what to do. It's to help them see for themselves the patterns and the alternatives until they make a decision to change their behavior themselves, which we know from what the, CBTs, the cognitive behavioral therapists mm -hmm. will say that's a much more long-term behavior change than, than 
just doing something because you were told and then reverting backwards. That's really incredible. Yeah. Loads of feedback from the users on things that they love, things that they don't love, um, suggestions that they have for the app as well, which is all um, fantastic. Um, but we were through our beta, we were able to um, have proof of concept. So we know that people are stressed. We know that there's a link between money stress and mental health. And we know that um, our psychology engine works, that wow. we're able to um, improve people's well-being with the suggestions that we make. And it is, yeah. our scientists have said, it's very early days and we will be conducting, um, you know, in the tech world and in the health world, what they call randomized controlled trials, where we'll be able to pinpoint exactly the impact that we have on people. But the early signs, yeah, are really promising. And so, um, so yeah. What, so what an exciting uh, space ahead. to be in and like such an intersection of strategy, research, design, creativity, health, well-being, like what an amazing space to be in. Wow. It, it it's, it's really fascinating. Every day when I walk to work, I'm just, yeah, excited at what the day is going to bring and who I'm going to be speaking to and our our neuroscientists, our science and our health team are just absolutely brilliant. And we're um, very lucky to have um, Jeff Bird, who heads up neuroscientists, heads up neuroscience at Oxford University as our health advisor. So um, the health community is really taking notice. And, you know, our health team as a whole is really eager to start to show the efficacy of the product, but we need to continue to develop the product because it is early days and get it to a point where it has all the critical functionality that we want it to have. Um, and then we'll be launching it early next year. Wow. Yeah. So Liz, why do you think that some brands still neglect this power of emotion and emotional insights in their approach to growing their business? Um, it's, that is a really good question. Why, why ignore it when we know it's so powerful? And I think probably if we want a simple answer is that emotions are complex and at times they're really difficult to interpret and it takes time. It's not as easy as looking at the rational and looking at the functional um, that it's, that's more logical. Um, and it, we all know emotions aren't logical. So, um, so it is more complex. And I think that probably scares people off and yeah. not truly understanding or comprehending, um, what it means. Do you believe that there are, uh, you know, best ways to create limbic sparks, these moments when emotional motivation meets brand desire, what would you, what would you share in terms of uh, those best ways? Yeah, I think a best way is like get a neuroscientist and a behavioral scientist on your team, get someone who really understands people and behaviors and how to measure it. Um, and also, if you can't do that, 
spend time with people. Spend time with your consumer. Really understand them. That's that's where it all goes back to is understanding the why um, of your consumer. And once you understand their emotional why, then yeah, then you can get there. I love that. As as a brand leader, uh, with all the experience that you have over the years, the diverse experience that you have, what is it that you know now that you wish you knew years ago? Maybe something that others could learn from. What I know now, and perhaps I, I've known this for a while, and that um, it's all about the team, and there's always going to be someone smarter than you in the room. So be humble. <laughs> Recognize that and embrace that people have different experiences, people have different perspectives, and just because they don't think the same way as you, don't shut their ideas down. That difference is what brings the most interesting um, outcomes and the most interesting results and the most interesting ideas. And being able to harness those different ideas and get people to see and appreciate different perspectives is something that I think I wish I had taken advantage of much earlier in my career. That is fantastic advice. I am so thrilled that we had this conversation. Liz, thank you so much for joining me today on Let's Talk Limbic Sparks. Oh, thanks, Kevin. It's been great. It's been really interesting. And you always ask those difficult questions. So thank you. Thank you for that. For more, go to limbicsparks.com.